Shall we try that again? Good morning, everybody. So if you were with us last week, when we had our evening service, you'll know we're in the middle week of a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Last week, we spoke about love, joy, and peace. And we're going to shake the order up a little bit, and this morning we'll look at faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we'll continue just with the, the series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to remind you, if you weren't there, the reason that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians is, at the time there were two groups in the church in Galatia. There were what we referred to as the law enforcers, who believed simply having Jesus wasn't enough. They still needed to observe the Old Testament laws and the Jewish traditions. And then you had the other group, which we called the rule rejectors, who said, no, no, hang on, Jesus has come, He's died for our sins, we don't need any rules, we can do whatever we want. And to address that, Paul wrote this letter. And then at the end with the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the key things to remember, because just shortly before the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about the acts of the flesh, or the acts of the sinful nature. And the list of the fruit of the Spirit is not contra list to the list of the acts of the flesh. Okay, It's not a list of do's and don'ts. These are things we develop in our characters as we are receptive to the Spirit and as He does His work in our lives. And we'll start this morning looking at faithfulness. But let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful that we can know you, grateful for your Spirit, grateful that you reveal yourself to us in so many ways. Thank you that we can have this purpose and this desire to know you. And I pray that that will be just utmost in our minds this morning and on our hearts to truly know you better and to be transformed by your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that it is you who speaks through me, that I am the mere instrument, that you will just yeah, speak the exact words through me that, that we need to hear this morning, Father, that we will be moved, that we will be transformed and changed and inspired by your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So faithfulness. We've heard the phrase in the parable, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that something that followers of Jesus really long to hear one day? But in order to be called a good and faithful servant, we kind of need to understand what that faithfulness really means. What it means to be a faithful servant. And this morning we look particularly in the context of the fruit of the Spirit. Now when you think of faithfulness, a lot of things come to mind. But there are really two key elements to faithfulness when you think about it. One part of it is being trustworthy and dependable. That describes faithfulness to you. Someone who's faithful to a cause or to you or to a relationship is trustworthy and dependable. But along with that goes being trustworthy and dependable consistently over a long period of time. Not trustworthy and dependable in one thing and then dropping the ball in another. And when you think about it, it really comes down to someone you just know you can rely on. A faithful person is someone you just can rely on. And when you think about that, doesn't that describe our God? Someone you can just completely and utterly rely upon consistently over a long period of time. So it makes sense that faithfulness is one of the, one of the items, one of the characteristics described when Paul describes the fruit of God's Spirit at work in us. You know, God is a faithful God. He's often described as our rock. 
He's described as a fortress. He's faithful. He never forsakes his people. So clearly the foundation of all faithfulness is God. But in the Bible we see that, and I want to pick out two New Testament characters who clearly show us what this faithfulness means in the context of the fruit of the Spirit. And the first and most obvious one is Jesus. If you go over to John 17, in verse 4, it says simply, Jesus speaking here says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And when you think about Jesus, what comes to mind when you think about his life on earth? His obedience to Christ, to, to God, yeah, absolutely. Don't you think of opposition, trials, You don't think of an easy life, do you? You think of someone who walked a path that was the hard path, that at every turn was opposed, who was challenged, who was ridiculed, who was questioned, who was ultimately brutally murdered. He suffered more than you or I ever will. Yet what do we learn from this one short verse? I brought glory to you here on earth, by completing the work you gave me to do. See, Jesus' understanding of faithfulness and being giving glory to God was completing the work that God had sent him to earth to do. He consistently was focused and faithful to the task that God had given him. And that's clearly a blueprint for us. Well done, good and faithful servant is a reference to Matthew 25. And let's go there quickly. Matthew 25. And I'll just pick out verse 21. The context here is the parable. The parable of different names of the talents of the bags of silver, however, whatever your version calls it. And it's about a master who has three servants and he has to go away on a trip. And he entrusts some of his, his wealth, really, to his servants. To one he gives five talents or five bags of silver to another three and to the other one. And when he comes back, he expects these servants to report on what they had done with this money that he'd entrusted them with. And the first one came back, he'd been wise with the money and he gave five more bags of silver. And look at the master's response. He says, the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. See, when we look at faithfulness, often we think simply now in terms of our relationship with God, don't we? How we respond to Him through the Bible, how we respond through Jesus, how we respond to the Spirit. And here we can see it's much more. Now the key thing to understand in this parable is it uses money as the object to describe the situation. But the parable is not really about money at all. It's about the kingdom of God and our role in that kingdom. It uses the money as the thing that the servants were called to be faithful with. But it's really about our faithfulness as a whole. And what we're being challenged with here is how faithful we are in all aspects of our lives. In our money, with our language, 
with our purity, with our witness on behalf of Jesus. So when this fruit of faithfulness is evident in our lives, no areas become off limits. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm, man, I'm trying so hard to be faithful, but don't ask me about my finances. You know, I really want to be faithful and be on mission here, but let's not talk about purity today. Are there areas that are off limits? Because when we have this desire to have this fruit of faithfulness, everything is an open book in our lives. We are an open book because our only purpose is the mission. We want to be faithful so that at the end of our lives, God can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, you were faithful with your finances. Well done, you were faithful in whatever it might be. But well done, you stuck to this mission no matter how hard it was. Now you might say that was easy for Jesus. You know, that was his purpose for being sent here. He was God at the same time as being man. So obviously he would do that. But how about Paul? Paul's a great example of faithfulness. Not only in his life, but in the way he encouraged others to be faithful. And more importantly, to be seen to be faithful. Go to Titus chapter 2. We'll be up there. Titus 2 says, Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Now do you understand, do you remember what the status of a slave was in that culture? Slaves effectively didn't count as a human being. Okay, slaves were property, they were subhuman, they could be treated however their masters chose to treat them. Yet Paul is challenging them to show themselves to be entirely trustworthy. A slave, a downtrodden person, someone who is constantly being unfairly treated, someone who has no rights, is being challenged to show themselves to be entirely trustworthy. To show their faithfulness to God in its entirety, completely, in all situations. So how much more you and I? What's our excuse if even slaves could be called to that standard? Now why did Paul think this faithfulness thing, trustworthiness, And being seen to be that was so important. Because you see, here's the problem. When we say we belong to Jesus, when we say Jesus is our Lord, yet we're known as the person who is unreliable and inconsistent, what does that say about our Lord? How does that reflect on our Master? Yet the opposite can also be true in our workplaces, in our relationships. In this family, when we are known as the most reliable, trustworthy people, be it at school, be it at work, wherever we may be, doesn't that speak powerfully about our Lord? Doesn't that say, this is someone who follows Jesus and he emulates Jesus. He is trustworthy, he is reliable. She's my go-to person when I need something done, for sure. 
or the opposite. Well, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus guy because look how terrible his servants are. And it's a key thing. How faithful are we in all aspects of our lives? So the question is with all the fruit of the Spirit to ask ourselves is this. Are you allowing the Spirit to cultivate the fruit of faithfulness in your life? Or are you stunting that growth? And if you're fighting it, be honest with yourself and admit that. Ask yourself, what message are you sending to everyone you encounter about Jesus? See, the positives always outweigh the negatives with God. And that's just how amazing it is. Because when we have this fruit of faithfulness, as an added bonus, when we're known as being faithful and trustworthy, our relationships deepen. That just happens. Those who are close to us trust us deeply and they rely on us in their most vulnerable moments because they know we are faithful, trustworthy and consistently so because they see this fruit of faithfulness in our lives. And ultimately, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7-8, to we see Paul saying this in his letter to Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is just not, not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearance. Paul stayed on course. He stayed on mission. And that is the example of faithfulness. That's why he could authoritatively say to them, this is a fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness. Not just being having that fidelity in our relationship with God, being true to Him, but being faithful to the mission. Being known as people who are reliable, who are trustworthy, who will do things even when they're hard or even when they're inconvenient because we are faithful to the mission of Jesus. Paul could say that at the end of his life. His long and difficult life. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that too? So again I ask you, are you allowing this fruit of faithfulness to be cultivated by the Holy Spirit in your life? And with all the fruit of the Spirit that we will see, the awesome thing is that we're in this family, we're in this community. There is someone who exhibits these characteristics better than you do and better than I do. Spend time with them. Help them help you to understand how that developed in their character. And we'll delve a little bit more into that when we look into gentleness a little bit later. But right now, I'm going to hand over to Luvio to talk about self-control. Good morning, church. Uh, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Okay, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at... Um, I just want to take us back a little bit to what Paul says before he goes into the fruits of the Spirit. Before I get into that, um, uh, I, as Jay indicated, I'm going to be speaking about self-control. Um, we, we had the Mitchells over last night um, for a bit of a bribe. And um, they brought my favorite dessert, okay? I never knew I was a dessert person until um, they made that dessert. And they, they made this malva pudding uh, with uh, warm 
custard. Okay. And <laughs> they brought a whole, uh, well, how do you call those? Classic dishes. And man, so after they left last night, I still had to do some work and I had to exercise some self-control not to get another slice because while we were together having dessert, I had the biggest, you know, you know those ones you find in the corner there? You know, I, I took out that one and, and I sat, I think, for more than two hours after that. Yo, I was tempted, just one for the road, you know, before I go and lay down for, for the day. Um, Galatians chapter 5, we read verses 19 down to 25. I'll try and move through these quickly. I think most of us are familiar with them. Um, it says there, when, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your lives will produce these evil results. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sin. Let me tell you again, as, I've, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, He will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here, there is no conflict with the law. Okay, um, what Paul does here, he first draws out a list of behaviors that we participate in as human beings. <clears throat> and these behaviors are shown at, our, at their most sinful and at our worst as human beings, right? I mean, <clears throat> to have to be told, we ought to refrain from things like debauchery. Clearly there's a problem somewhere, right? So, as we look into them, I want us to have, uh, to keep this in mind, because there's something very interesting about this particular fruit of the Spirit. Um, so we've got us on the one hand, with all of these behaviors we ought to be fighting against in our own lives, and then there is God on the other hand. I bring God into this for the following reasons. If you look at the list below of the fruits of the Spirit, each and every one of them has a quality of God in it, right? But before we go into that, let's go to excuse me. Let's go into First James. I mean James one. First James. <coughs> creating, creating books in the Bible here. James chapter one. <coughs> We've seen our nature. I want us to take a peek at God's nature quickly, so that we can get some perspective into this. James chapter one, verse thirteen reads. And remember, no one who wants to do wrong should ever say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else either. And then it goes on to say where temptation comes from. Okay. I must say, when, when, when I put this, or when I read these things, 
my, 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 my hair was blown back a little bit. God never gets tempted. And it warns us. And I like the fact, Paul is so wise, I mean obviously led by the Holy Spirit. He says, those who want to do wrong, they should never say that God is tempting me. Okay, because God can never be tempted to do evil. That's just his nature. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around that. Because our nature wants to do nothing but the opposite, right? And we've got our God who just can never be tempted. Now, I bring this up because, as I said, the fruits of the Spirit, each and every one of them has a quality of God in it. Except one. Self-control. We've heard about the love of God. We know about the joy of the Lord from the scripture. We know about the peace of God, right? God's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness. We know about that. But there's nowhere in the Bible where we hear about God self-control. Because he doesn't need that. Do you guys get this? Because he never, he's never tempted to do wrong. He is never tempted by evil. He's never tempted to do evil. He, he doesn't need to exercise self-control. So why is that fruit of the Spirit there then? For entirely our benefit. Just us. God added one just for us. Right? Um, let's take a look at Second Peter and see... There's an other list here that he mentions of some of the great qualities um, that complement the fruits of the Spirit. Let's quickly find my second Peter. Second, is it first? My apologies, it's supposed to be second. Sorry, Dean. <clears throat> okay, let, let, let's get there and confirm. Appreciate your guys' grace here. I'm not a usual speaker. So, this is like training ground with the wheels on. Second Peter 1, let's see from verse 5. Yes, it's Second Peter, my apologies. Okay, verse 5 says, So make every effort to apply benefits of these promises to your life. Then your faith will produce life of moral excellence. A life of moral excellence leads to knowing God better. Knowing God leads to self-control. Self-control leads to patient endurance. And patient endurance leads to godliness. Godliness leads to love for other Christians. And finally, you will grow to have genuine love for everyone. Now, there is a Greek philosopher and scientist named Aristotle. Aristotle said the following about self-control. He said, self-control are passions, powerful passions within us that are kept under control. I guess that's kind of self-explanatory and obvious as well. But I think, in fact, he goes on to say that we ought to cultivate within ourselves self-control. I think this is where the power of God is made really clear sometimes. Is obviously a scientist coming from a certain background, academic or what have you, reckons that we can and should cultivate self-control within ourselves. And I think 
I don't know how much of the Bible he'd read, because in Romans, Paul talks about wanting to do good and finding yourself not doing good. What is that? That is a sinful nature at work. That is us failing or lacking self-control. Right? You want to do something specific, but you find yourself doing something else. So, the lesson here for us is that these passions within us, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we cannot control them. So, that is why, together with God and the Holy Spirit, we ought, firstly, to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit in us, to help us to learn this self-control so that we can learn to exercise self-control over ourselves. Do we get this? Okay. This, this is just the mind-blowing power of sin sometimes. I think we underestimate sometimes the, the, the effects of sin and how it works in our lives. And that's why we may, maybe to a small degree depending on where we are, fail also to understand the importance of exercising self-control. And again, it's not something that we can do on ourselves. We need God. We need to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. In doing so, submit ourselves to God's will and let his will produce in our will the self-control that is required. Now, when we lack self-control there can be catastrophic consequences. Let's take a look quickly at one example in Genesis chapter 39. I think, um, again, this is one of the familiar stories in the Bible. Genesis chapter 39, we look, in fact, we're looking at the positive first before we look at the negative. This is a positive example of somebody who exercised self-control to a great benefit. Genesis chapter 39, I'll read quickly from 6 down to 12. It says here, So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administration or a complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't have worry in the world except to decide what he wanted to eat. Now Joseph was a very handsome man and well built young oh sorry, let me just go back. Now Joseph was a very handsome and well built young man. And about about this time Potiphar's wife began to desire him and invited him to sleep with her. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, My master trusts me with everything in in, in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife, how can I ever do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And obviously she kept putting pressure on him and one day she finds him in the house doing his job and grabs him and by his cloak and man, because this guy was so determined and so solid and so faithful to God, he loosed himself out of his cloak, dashed out of the house, leaving her there with the cloak. And I can imagine for anybody, that kind of rejection would not sit well 
obviously she went on to tell a lie to her husband, you know, feeling probably humiliated that this guy wanted nothing to do with her. You know, as pretty as she might have been, you know, but the key thing here that I want to bring our attention to is there's two things, two reasons Joseph wouldn't even consider this. Firstly, he says, how could I betray my master in this way? Okay, so he had integrity within himself. He would not give in for anything. But more than that, his relationship with God was so solid, it was inconceivable for David, I mean for Joseph, to do something like that. He's like, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You know, so the key thing again here is that it was not something within himself without God. God was right in the center of his self-control. Do we get this? I think for, 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 for most men in this position, I think it would have gone the other way. Way before it even got to this lady grabbing you know, him by his jacket. I think it would have gone way before that. But... He exercised such self-control because firstly, he knew that Potiphar trusted him with everything. Everything in his house. He said the only thing he worried himself was, what's for lunch today? That's it. That is a man with zero worries in the world. Right? Then on the other, on the other side, which is a more negative story, I think we all know the story of David, <clears throat> Um, in fact, let's not go there for time's sake. We, we know that David woke up one night or early evening, walked up the roof of the palace and seeing Bathsheba taking a bath across, sent for her. And we all know what happened, right? And I, just want, I want us to focus on the consequences, though, of his lack of self-control. Firstly, he winds up orchestrating an untimely death of a man, giving a direct instruction. So send him forward into where the war is the fiercest and pull back, leave him there. Why? Because back at the ranch, things were cooking as a result of his lack of self-control. He's gone and impregnated somebody's wife. This thing is going to come out. This man has been to battle for months. This lady is going to have to explain, how do you get pregnant when I'm not here as your husband? You know, obviously he gets him killed. This poor lady is widowed. She loses her child because of the consequences of this. David goes on to lose moral authority in his own household. His sons turn against him. As a consequence of his lack of self-control. Such are the devastating effects of self or lack, lack of self-control sometimes. Okay. And um, I think for us today, if you notice here the similarities, there's something around sexual intimacy going on here where, as far as this lack of self-control is. I mean, there are other examples in the Bible where self or lack of self-control is shown or where self-control is indicated and somebody's life goes on to 
um, to honor God. Um, this is the works of the flesh, Paul writes about. Flesh will lead us down the temptation path around sexual intimacy. I think it was the same back then. It, I don't think it's different today. We know what the world says about sexual intimacy nowadays. Is If we're going to get married, why not live together now? You know, or in fact, some people they use that as a measure to decide whether they will become compatible as a married couple. They first live together for some time and see how it goes. The benefit for that mostly is around the sexual intimacy. And obviously, God is completely against that. He set marriage specifically as the only context through which that kind of intimacy is to be experienced. No other way. Because we have, no, we have no self-control as a people, we make up all these little excuses and reasons and all kinds of things, simply because we cannot control ourselves. Right? Now, <clears throat> things like this in, in our Christian or modern Christianity have been seen to creep into the church as well. Where... Members of the church get involved either within the church or outside of the church. We are no different. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to exercise self-control over ourselves and our, the desires of our flesh. It's as simple as that. That is the one aspect of it. As I close, there is another one. There is quite a few, but because of time we can't get to them. I want to take you guys through the last scripture, James chapter 3, quickly. James chapter 3, we read from verse... Okay, it's 1 to 10, it's quite long, but I'll try and cruise through it quickly. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged by God with greater strictness. We all, make mis- we all make many mistakes, but those who control their tongue can also control themselves in every other way. We can make a large horse turn around and go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a tiny rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot wants it to go, even though the winds are strong. So also, the tongue is a small thing, but what enormous damage it can do. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And the tongue is a flame of fire. It is full of wickedness that can ruin your whole life. It can turn an entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction. For it is set on, it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, and birds and reptiles and fish, but not, no one can tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and other times it breaks, out, it breaks out into curses against those who have been made in the image of God. I don't think I need to say more about this. We ought to exercise self-control over the things we say. That goes without saying. According to the scripture, there is nothing more damaging than the tongue. A tiny little part of the body that says it can change the direction of your life. 
That, that is amazing to me. And it's so true. It is so true. Now, this obviously is not restricted to what we say to each other when we talk. I do believe it does extend to Facebook messages, Twitters, Instagram, blogs, WhatsApp. The things that we say on those platforms have just as much power to damage as the tongue does. So, we've all heard, or maybe not all, maybe most of us have heard of stories within the Christian communities where people were hurt. Their dreams shattered by what other people said. And um, I'll make you guys an, an example. My wife and I were baptized in PE. I moved to Cape Town uh, for a year before she moved to Cape Town to start, a, to start working there. And um, people that knew us, they knew that we dated and broke up, dated and broke up, dated and broke up here in PE a couple of times as we were both growing in different areas. And we eventually got to Cape Town and we decided, you know what, we're going to take this forward. Not because of anything we have in ourselves, but we trust that God is going to help us as we go along. And um, somebody in a very significant position in the church said something like, those two have no idea what they're doing. That is a disaster waiting to happen. When we got engaged, which then to me translated into, it was never going to work out between the two of us. A person had seen and decided that they can see into the future like God can, and it was never going to work out. Despite God and all of his people around us, he, she had just decided we don't know what we're doing. Not only that, there was another person named that I should have considered to date and get married to. You know, so sometimes within our own family, we can say things that stay in our hearts for a long time with negative effects. So that is the power of, or that is the power contained within our lack of self-control. We can drive people out of God's church by the things we say. So we ought to be very careful of this. Lastly, obviously self-control is the one quality, the one quality that, or the one fruit of the Spirit that God added just for us in the Bible. So let's remember that it not only serves what I've just spoken about now, it directs our thoughts and actions towards others and towards ourselves at times. So as I close, I want to ask you this. What things or what areas of your life do you feel you need to exercise self-control in? We'll close out just by looking quickly at the third fruit we look at this morning, being gentleness. So I'll start off again by saying, what is gentleness? Now is it a soft voice, a calm demeanor, 
is it a soft person, and is it someone who always is in the background, kind of never raises their voice, those kinds of things. Gentleness really is defined as the ability to endure hostility and criticism without aggression. Gentleness shows itself when we've learned that the way to respond to harsh words, to conflict, to quarrels, and even to unfair treatment is not to fire back with harsh, aggressive words or gestures or facial expressions or being passive-aggressive, but rather with softness, with controlled words, with a controlled tone, most of all in controlling our temper. See, gentleness is that thing in our characters that allows us to understand, even in the heat of an argument, that the other person may also be hurt by what's happening. That they're a real person with feelings and fears, and that fighting back in that moment may only escalate the conflict. Now, that doesn't mean gentleness means sitting back and just sucking it up and being treated unfairly, because a gentle response can often be a very strong one, a firm one, a clear one, but without the rage or the viciousness that would otherwise accompany it if we lacked that gentleness. In Ephesians 4, verses 1, 2, Paul says here, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. See, gentleness is also very closely linked to humility. It takes humility to not aggressively defend yourself or to show on your face that this isn't right, to make that known. See, humbly listening to what the other person is saying, even when every fiber of your being is screaming out against it, is what makes a gentle response possible. And I think we can all relate to situations in our lives where, you know, somebody said something and we've responded aggressively. Maybe we've shouted at them, maybe we've just walked away, maybe we've done something that is clearly aggressive. My question to you is, when you think back at that moment, how well did that go? And hopefully we've also got some situations where that same scenario happened, but we somehow just responded gently. We remained calm. We listened. We didn't change our tone of voice. Same question. How did that go for you? Which one had the better effect and impact on your relationship with that person? Now I want to especially address something to the men this morning. And I want to ask you this. How deeply is the idea that real men are neither humble nor gentle ingrained in your character? Because for centuries, and even today, the world programs you to believe that. Real men can't be humble or gentle. Because that's just soft and that's not cool. That's what the world wants you to believe. But as with so many things that the world wants you to believe, that is simply a lie. The truth is found in God's Word. And we see gentleness all over the Bible in God's character. Just two examples. You think of Psalm 23, how David describes God as the shepherd. He's walking in the pastures. It's a calm, serene picture, isn't it? If you're not familiar with it, go and read Psalm 23. It just gives you a great example of God's gentleness. And then in Genesis 16, we won't go there as well. We've got a bit to get through. Hagar 
flees from Abraham and Sarah because she was being mistreated. Who goes after her to console her, to comfort her, to tell her things will be alright? God does. Isn't that your gentleness of heart, of character? And she called him El Roy, the God who sees me. The first person to give a name to God, by the way. Matthew 11, verses 28-29 says, Jesus speaking, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. See, Jesus describes himself as gentle. And looking at his life, we can clearly see that's true. And yet I dare you to identify a human being in the history of the world who was stronger than Jesus. John 4, verse 78, again, seeing the gentleness of Jesus here, said, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now again, an encounter that was socially unacceptable. Okay? To Jews, Samaritans were outcasts. They were just not to be mixed with, not even spoken to, not even looked at, never mind spoken to. And then down in verses 16 to 18, still in this encounter with the Samaritan woman, he says to her, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke truth. Now often all we see in this passage is the rebuke. Okay, we see this as Jesus rebuking her. But he doesn't reject her, or shout at her, or leaving her feel feeling low, or like less than what she was. Even in her sin, even in that scenario, he treats her gently. And he leaves her with the realization that she needs the salvation that God sent through him. All because of his gentle response, his gentle encounter with her. His gentleness allowed his words to pierce her heart. Now think about that. When you've reacted aggressively to someone, even when you were right, has that really cut them and moved them and pierced them? Or has it made them feel more defensive? And kind of ignore everything you're saying because we're being aggressive here. But when you're gentle, and when people are gentle with you, their words have so much more power to move your heart, to find, to take root somewhere, and to allow that transformation to happen. Jesus, throughout his arrest, his trial, and even his crucifixion, responded gently everything that was said about him and done to him. He never flew into a rage. He never got aggressive. He never shouted them down with how stupid they were being and how wrong they were. He defended himself, but it was all done in gentleness. And the final most amazing act and example of gentleness for us to emulate in our relationships is after Jesus' resurrection in John 21. Verses 15 to 19. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. 
Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. And we know the story of Peter. In Jesus' most vulnerable moment, Peter denied Jesus. Not once, not even twice, but three times. Okay, clearly denied Jesus. Now just put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just a second. What would that feel like? Someone you trusted, someone you loved, someone you believed loved you, letting you down in your most vulnerable moment. That would evoke some kind of response in me. I don't know about you. I would be tempted to rage at them a little bit, to shout at them, to accuse them. And then imagine seeing that person again after you'd suffered that unimaginable pain. And you'd suffered agony to benefit them, even after they had denied you, or rejected you, or let you down. And yet in this, when Jesus is resurrected and he sees his disciples again, he restores that relationship with Peter. Look at how Jesus is speaking to him. Do you see him talking about the pain that was caused by that rejection? Not there, is it? Do you see him asking Peter, Peter, why did you do that? How could you do that to me? He doesn't ask that, does he? Not a single accusation. A completely gentle response to a potentially explosive and volatile situation. What an incredible example of gentleness and its incredible impact of the lives with whom we interact. Imagine Jesus reacting aggressively. Yes, it was Jesus, but Peter might have gotten a little bit defensive there. He's human after all. But because of that gentle interaction, look at what he went on to achieve in his ministry, in the mission. See, the Holy Spirit wants to cultivate the fruit of gentleness in your and my life. Are we allowing it to grow? Are we stunting it? As we conclude this morning, we've learned about three more things that the Spirit wants to add to our character in understanding the fruit of faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And the question remains, am I allowing these to grow in my life? Now the wonderful thing about this is it's not a solo effort. Christianity never is and it never can be. We are designed to do that as a family in a community. So my suggestion is, with the three we learned last week and with the three we've seen this week, if you see others' character, we show the growth of these fruits, that particular fruit in their lives. Spend some time with them. Have a conversation with them. Be real. Say, you know what? I struggle with faithfulness. I struggle with gentleness. I struggle with love. How did that develop in your life? Learn what their thought process is around it. 
But here's the key thing. Don't simply try to mimic their response or their thought pattern. Learn about it. Understand what makes them tick and enables them to show that fruit in their life. But don't simply try and copy-paste in your own life. Because then you'll succeed for a while and on the surface it will look like you have that fruit in your life. But when the chips are really down and you know, you're under stress and you're under pressure, you won't respond that way. Because you're simply borrowing behaviors from someone. You haven't changed your own character. But rather as the Spirit, ask the Spirit to help you change your thought patterns, change your responses, and allow that fruit to grow in your life. And figure out what it is that's leading you to stunt or even stop the growth of that particular fruit in your life. See, when we allow the Spirit to work and develop our characters in this way, we reap the benefit of the fruit of the Spirit as seen in our characters in a lasting way. Not in a way where we can exercise self-control for a week, but next week we fall off the wagon again. Or we're faithful for a little bit this week, and next week someone asks us to do something and we just totally drop the ball. Or this afternoon, because we heard about gentleness, we, we have this amazing gentle response when we're wronged, but by Wednesday we're shouting at people again. That's not the true growth of that character, of our characters, through the Spirit. Let's interact with one another. But let's not forget to appeal to the Spirit because He is the one who is allowing our characters to be transformed to show this fruit in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You just for just so many incredible ways You reveal Yourself, so many incredible tools You give us to allow ourselves to be more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank You for just Your tireless work at refining our characters, at growing this, this fruit in our lives as you as our paraclete just working tirelessly to point to Jesus and to help our lives point to Jesus. I pray Father as we, as we learn more about the fruit of the Spirit, as we've looked at the six that we've looked at thus far, that we'll truly have a sober look at our lives but also be excited by the fact that where we do lack them, we don't need to lack them forever that you are there at work wanting to add these things to our character, wanting to enhance our witness that ultimately we can show the world who our Lord is and really just complete and continue that mission that we will be faithful to for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.